This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Okay, good morning to you all. Sorry my voice is a bit uh, weak today, but pray to God that uh, we can go through it properly. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you this morning, we pray that you help us to understand this magnificent passage about the meaning of the death of Jesus. And we pray that we will all the more really understand what it means to be a Christian and why it's so important for us to keep putting our faith in Jesus alone. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, what is the heart of Christianity? Okay, what is the core of Christianity? What is the crux and center of Christianity? Well, in preparation for today's sermon, I dug out this book that uh, my wife bought in 1994. Okay, it's called The Atonement by Leon Morris. And uh, it's actually still on sale. So it shows, shows you how, uh, how uh, I guess, popular it is. And, and it's actually one of the best theological books I've written. Uh, I've read anyway. I haven't written. I read on The Atonement. And uh, if you go to Amazon, it actually got four and a half stars. So it can't be that bad, right? So I hope that you can actually uh, read it one day. But in the book, when he wrote it in, I think, 1994, 1984, or whatever, he says that uh, the problem today, even more so today than in his time, is people minimize the cross of Jesus. Uh, they minimize the meaning of the cross, and they minimize the significance of the cross. But instead, what people do in many churches today is they elevate other things. They elevate prosperity, health, and wealth. Or they elevate speaking in tongues or prophecy, or they elevate rules and regulations, spiritual practices and disciplines. But how do we know that the center of Christianity, that the core and the heart of Christianity is about the cross? Well, the answer is to find out what is the mission of Jesus. What did Jesus come to do when he came on earth? And that's what we are looking at in today's passage in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. Now, over the last year, we've been studying the book of Isaiah, and uh, we realized that uh, in the context of Isaiah, God's people are in a bad state, right? They were in a bad situation. So in the first half of Isaiah, they were under threat from the Assyrians. And as we come to chapter 40 onwards, God's people had been conquered by the great superpower, the Babylonians. The capital, Jerusalem, had been destroyed. And they themselves have been exiled up into Babylon. So all this while, they've been trying different sorts of solutions, right? Uh, political solutions, money, trying to buy off their various enemies, military alliances, human wisdom, other gods. And they all got them nowhere. So in chapter 42, on the next slide, God introduces this person, this mysterious person called the servant of the Lord. So he began, if you remember many weeks ago why I was preaching, in chapter 41 it says, Behold, all of them are false, right? So all these things that you follow, they're all false. Their works are worthless, their molten images are wind and emptiness. But behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, I will bring forth justice to the nations. So Back in chapter 42, God said, Behold. So, you know, behold means pay attention, right? Concentrate. Fix your eyes on this. Don't fix your eyes on wisdom or idols, but fix your eyes on the servant. So, over the last few weeks, we've seen 
three passages, three out of the four passages about the servant. Okay, so we looked at Isaiah 42, we looked at Isaiah 49, and Isaiah chapter 50. And three things, oh sorry, of all these three chapters, two things have come out of what we've learned so far. The first thing is that the servant has come to save, right? The servant has come to save people. The second thing is that the servant will also suffer. But the problem is, how do you reconcile these two things, right? I imagine the original readers would be thinking, how does the servant save and suffer at the same time? Well, today in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, all these things will finally be answered. Now, as we look at this passage, uh, it's a really magnificent passage, it's really breathtaking. I think I want to suggest to you that one of the, the ways that we can understand this passage is by looking at the structure. So it's actually got a very interesting structure in Isaiah chapter 52 to 53. Now, uh, that's why we encourage you to go to Bible study, right? Because when you went to Bible study, hopefully you would have seen somewhat, uh, some things of what I'm trying to say today. But really, there's a, <clears throat> if you look at chapter 53 and 52, there's something of a hamburger structure, right? It's like, uh, what technically is called a chiastic structure, where the beginning parallels with the end, and the, the not-so-beginning parallels with the not-so-end, and there's a center part, like a hamburger, okay? And really, when you look at Isaiah 52 and 53, the parallels are based on asking the question, what is the servant going to do? Right? How is the servant going to do it? And finally, right in the very meat of the passage, why is the servant doing this? What is the, the very reason why the servant does all these things? So it's going to be a long sermon, but I'm going to sort of cut through it a little bit because I'm not going to read all the passages. I'm going to put it up, but I'm just going to highlight the most important parts for you. But let's look at the first part, the what question. What is the servant going to do? So turn with me to Isaiah 52, verse 13 to 15. Okay, Isaiah 52, verse 13 to 15. It says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there are many who are appalled in him, excuse me, <clears throat> His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. What they have not heard, they will understand. So the first thing we see in verse 13 is that the servant will act wisely. He will accomplish God's plan. He will do what God wants him to do. He will do what is right. But as he does what is right, as he acts wisely, not foolishly, God will raise him, God will lift him up, and God will highly exalt him. Now this is all very puzzling. Right? I mean, imagine the original reader, 6th, 7th century BC, before the coming of Jesus. What's happening here? How is this servant going to do what is wise and be raised up, lifted up, and highly exalted? But if it was puzzling, and uh, you can imagine the original readers frowning away, trying to understand what's happening, then verse 14 is even more uh, puzzling, right? Because this very same, same person who is raised and lifted up and highly exalted, it says in verse 14, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, his form marred beyond human likeness. 
Now, if you look at just these first two verses, you think there's this big paradox, right? Because how can this person, who's so raised up and exalted, be so repulsive to people, right? His, his, his appearance is marred beyond human likeness. It's like, uh, you know those, uh, I mean, if you watch people who are boxing, uh, I don't know whether you watch boxing or you mix, watch mixed martial arts. I know there's uh, one or two people here who watch mixed martial arts, but you know, if you watch people who do these things like the loser of the fight, they are like really bashed up, right? Like they know there's the blood, there's swelling in their eyes. It's like they are, you know, they don't look human anymore. And that's what the picture is here, isn't it? Because here in verse 13, there's a person who's exalted, but then there's a person who at the same time is marred and disfigured beyond human likeness. Well, this brings us now to the person of Jesus. Because Jesus actually is the fulfillment of what these verses are saying. Because as we look at Jesus, Jesus is that person who really in, in, in many ways was disfigured and marred beyond human recognition. And if you, if you wanted to really disfigure someone in the ancient world, then the perfect way of doing it was to crucify them. Right? Because the Roman crucifixion was really vandalism on the human body, right? It's like, if you really wanted to make someone look inhuman, then you just got them crucified. So, if you look at the, the life of Jesus, you see that Jesus, before he even went to the cross, he was beaten and punched and slapped in the face uh, by the Pharisees. Okay, so you see that in Matthew chapter 26. Okay, he was, they spat in his face in verse 67. They struck him with their fists. They slapped him and said, prophesy to us Christ who hit you. And then in the next chapter, Matthew chapter 27, the soldiers, when they arrested Jesus, they punched him and struck him on the head with a stick. And it says there in verse 30, they struck him on the head again and again and again. And then they, they, they forced on his head a crown of thorns, right? And then before they actually went to the cross, in Mark chapter 15, verse 15, uh, Jesus was flogged. Uh, and it's not like caning in Changi prison, right? It's like they flogged him with a, 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 a whip with pieces of metal and stone so that, you know, uh, in the ancient world, when they whipped you this way, it's so bad that your skin and muscle and even your stomach can be seen. And then finally, he was crucified on the cross with nails driven through his hands and his feet. So if you saw Jesus at the cross, you would be Appalled, you would be just as Isaiah chapter 52 says, you would be appalled at him. It's like if you had children, you would be covering their eyes so that they wouldn't see this man who was no longer human on the cross, but his body had been vandalized. So often you see pictures of Jesus in art, right? So, you know, if you go to any of the museums in, in, in the Louvre, in Paris, or in England, <clears throat> you see pictures of Jesus on the cross. And he's quite a popular, um, I guess, subject for people to paint in history. But, but there's something wrong with these pictures, right? Because these pictures are not the pictures that we see in reality. It is not the picture that we see in the Bible. It's not the picture that we see in Isaiah 52 because Jesus is still recognizably human. He's not marred, right? He's not disfigured. He's not... Um, uh, vandalized in terms of being human. But the reality is Jesus, 
the servant truly, truly suffered greatly because as he acted wisely to accomplish his mission, he went through the journey of suffering, real human suffering. But then Isaiah 52 verse 13 says that at the same time as he suffered, because he acted wisely, God raised him up, God lifted him up, and he was highly exalted. And again, that's what we see in the life of Jesus. Because, again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we see that Jesus was raised from the dead. He died, he was buried, then he was raised on the third day. And the book of Acts, after he was raised from the dead, he was then lifted up into the very heavens. And then in the book of Philippians, we read that after he was lifted up into the heavens, he was exalted by God to the highest place, so that every name should bow before the name of Jesus. So what have we seen here so far? So as we said, right, you can see that there's a structure in the book of Isaiah 52 and 53. So the first part really asks, what did Jesus come to do? What was his mission? His mission was to suffer, to die, and then to be raised from the dead and exalted. And Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, uh, the other half of the bun, so to speak, right, in the hamburger, it says the same things, right? Because in verse 10 to 11, it says, Yet it was God's or the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord make his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. So we see that the same picture is being paralleled in the other half of the bun as to the beginning. Because it was God's will to make him suffer and to crush him. Now, the word to crush him here literally means to kill Jesus, to kill the servant. So you know when you watch uh, the Avengers, right? When uh, Thanos uh, crushes Loki. Actually, I had a picture of it, but then it looked so horrific that I thought I better not put it on because you know there might be some people, some young kids in the second service who might be appalled by it. But you know, if you remember the movie where Thanos crushes Loki, you know who Loki is, right? Thor's brother, and kills him. Well, that's the picture here, right? When God basically crushes Jesus to kill him, Well, yet, God says that the servant will see the light of life and be satisfied. He will see offspring and prolong his days. That means literally, after he is crushed by God, he will then live again. And that's why if you look at the diagram once again, the the top part and the bottom part of the hamburger both saying the same thing. The servant of the Lord suffers, dies, and lives again. And that's what we see in the person of Jesus, right? Jesus suffers, he dies, and he lives again. But the question then is, how does it, how does this happen, right? What are the details of Jesus' death? What are the details of the servant's death? And this is where we see the next part of the hamburger, right? The bee and the bees. So the next part in verse Chapter 53, verse 1 to 3 says, Who has believed our message? 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no majesty or beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Now, this section begins with a question, right? <clears throat> Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And here again is uh, something very curious, right? Another paradox, because if we've been reading through the book of Isaiah, the arm of the Lord is a picture of power, right? I mean, my arm not very powerful, but imagine like, uh, uh, you know, the Aquaman guy, the Momo guy, what's the Momo guy? Or Arnold Schwarzenegger or some... Big guy, right? Like Dwayne Johnson or something. Like, you know, the arm of Dwayne Johnson, right, represents power and might. Well, the arm of God represents the same thing, right? It's power, might, strength. So you'd expect that the servant whom the arm of the Lord reveals would be very impressive and majestic. He'll be someone who would be mighty and respected and worship and bow down to. But here we see is the very opposite, right? Because he is described as Someone like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground, right? So it's just like a little, like a little weed growing out of ground. It's like, you know, when I walk my dog every morning and afternoon, you know, we're walking in the grass, you always see all these little weeds growing out of the dry ground, right? It's like, you know, I don't take any notice of it. It's something very unimpressive. It's not as if someone has, you know, put a nice pot and planted this majestic plant. No, it's just like a little plant growing out of dry ground. It's like you just walk past it every day. And that's what Jesus is like. That's what the servant is like. He's unimpressive and it seems like being unworthy. But not only is the servant here described as unimpressive or unworthy, but it says that he was despised and rejected by men. He was like repulsive to you and me. You know, it's like uh, in verse 3, it says, like one from whom men hide their faces. Um, so I remember twice in my life, uh, I've been accused by, um, friends for, um, ignoring, ignoring them. So once I was in, uh, I remember when university, apparently, I think I was, I was in a great hurry and I, I walked past this person and I didn't realize they said hello to me and they were my friends. I remember once I was working and, and then I walked, uh, in, in, you know, on the road and I was very busy. I, my thoughts were something else and somebody else said hello to me and I just blanked them out, right? So someone in my Bible study in the past is like blanking people out, right? But here is like, uh, both of my friends said, I, I didn't, I didn't acknowledge them because I was ashamed of them, right? But I, I'm not that sort of person, right? I think. Anyway, so I, I wasn't ashamed of them. I was just like, I had something in my mind. But this passage here is, is basically saying that men hide their faces from Jesus because they were ashamed of him, right? They were so repulsed and disgusted at Jesus that they, they didn't want to, they didn't want to acknowledge him. They, they wanted to pretend that they, they, they didn't know him. And part of the reason was because it says here, he was despised and rejected by men, like one from whom men hide their faces. Why? Because he was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, right? So it's like, if someone is, suffering. Imagine if someone is being punished by the Roman authorities as a terrorist, then you could imagine that I don't really want to be too close to this guy, right? Because, you know, I, I might get punished too. 
And that's exactly what we see in the life of Jesus, right? Because he was despised and rejected by the very people who welcomed him in the beginning because he was hanging by the, on the cross. He was no longer seen as the king of the Jews. Chapter 53, verse 7 to 9, which is the other half of the uh, hamburger, gives us more details about how uh, Jesus actually suffered, right? What were the details of it? So in verse 7 it says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a lamb before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, was nor was any deceit in his mouth. Now here we see that uh, the man of sorrows was suffering not because he had some financial difficulty or you know relationship breakdown, but he suffered because of oppression and judgment. Right? Those two words keep being re- repeated. Right? Oppress, oppress. In verse seven, oppress. In verse eight, oppress. So when you take these words together, oppress and judgment. It just means that he was suffering because of oppressive justice, right? He was given oppressive legal treatment. So those two things, despised and rejected, oppressive injustice, come together in the servant's life. This is why and how the servant suffers, right? This is how the servant suffers, because of oppressive judgment, being despised and rejected by the people. And this all comes together once again in the life of Jesus. So Matthew chapter 27, which is up here, when, when Jesus appeared before Pilate on the final, he was the final judge, right, who had the power to crucify Jesus. Pilate repeatedly said, you know, what crime has Jesus committed? What crime has this man committed? And finally, Pilate when he realizes that he cannot stop the crucifixion of Jesus, says, you know, I'm innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. So Pilate himself recognizes that Jesus is innocent, although he's going to be crucified. But at the same time, in this very same chapter, we see that because of the people despising Jesus and rejecting Jesus, all of the people around him on that day rejected Jesus and refused to acknowledge Jesus. Right? So all the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. And then the governor's soldiers, uh, they rejected Jesus. Right? They mocked Jesus. They put the, the robe on him. They, they stripped him. They put the crown of thorns in his head. Even the robbers who were crucified on the left and the right of Jesus, right? they mocked Jesus, they despised Jesus. And those who passed by the crucifixion site, they hurled insults at him, shaking their head. And the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. So here we see the details of how the servant was going to die. He's going to be despised and rejected. He was going to face oppressive injustice. 
Now I want you to take note of verse 9, right? Because I find verse 9 very, very uh, fascinating and something which I never realized before. But I think that there's uh, something to be said about verse 9. Because in verse 9 he said, it is said, He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Now, we see the part about how Jesus is innocent. Uh, He had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. But, isn't it strange because it says, he was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death. So, yeah, we can understand how uh, the person who is uh, suffering in this way could die with the wicked, but why the rich? Why the rich? Is it because the rich are wicked, or the, you know, the the rich are just generally wicked people? Well, I think actually, if you look at the life of Jesus, you can't help but see many similarities with the life of Jesus and what verse nine is saying. Because in the ancient world, when the Romans crucified you, the final indignity was to throw you into a common grave, right? Because, you know, they didn't want you to have this grave there where people will come and, you know, remember you as a martyr and be encouraged to follow you as a terrorist, right? So what would they do? It's like what the Americans did to Osama, right? It's like there's no grave for you to, to go to, right? It's like, so they, they would throw all the people they crucified into a common grave. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, if you watch this movie, Risen, right? Um, I think we, we've shown this movie before in various contexts. So, you know, one of the scenes, the Roman centurion goes to this common grave to go and look for the body of Jesus. Well, that's what happened, right? You know, if you're crucified, when they took your body down, they just threw you into this grave with everybody else. But what happened to Jesus? He was assigned a grave with the wicked. But the reality was that he was buried with the rich. Because in Matthew chapter 27, it was Joseph of Arimathea who was a rich man who went to Pilate to ask for Jesus' body. And Joseph took the body and buried it in his own tomb, the rich man's tomb. So can you see how amazing that really is? I mean, uh, I'm not going to lay down my life and say this is exactly what Isaiah has in mind. But there's so many similarities that that is quite persuasive that that's what actually is in view here, isn't it? That Jesus was assigned a grave to die with the wicked, but actually in the end, he was buried with the rich. So as we come back again to the structure of Isaiah 52 and 53, um, can you have the diagram? Yep. You see that, again, uh, the bees and the bees say the same thing, isn't it? Jesus was despised and rejected, and he suffered And by oppressive injustice, he was murdered and buried. These are the details of Jesus' suffering, the servant's suffering. But now we come to the most important question, the C. Why does the servant need to do this? Why does Jesus do this? So verse 4 to 6 really are the most important part of this section. Okay, like, you know, if you've fallen asleep the whole time, well, this is the time to wake up, right? Because this is the most important time of this passage. So it says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, 
He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, verse 5 really is the key verse, right? Uh, if you look at it structurally, um, verse 5 is like the middle, middle of the whole hamburger, right? It's like the middle of all the verses put together, right? So that's the heart of what this section is really saying. That Jesus, he was pierced and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds, we are healed. Now, if you look at this passage, it reflects, uh, it turns around the whole understanding of the servant suffering. In verse 3, and in verse 4b, right, in verse 3 and verse 4, it's as if people despise Jesus because of his suffering. We look at him and we think, oh, he was stricken by God. Stricken means you strike, right? God struck him. He was smitten by God. He was destroyed by God. He was afflicted by God because he did something wrong, right? So when people look at the servant, they think, oh, you know, I don't want to, I want to hide my face from this servant character because God is punishing him for his his sins. But the servant, it says here very clearly, is actually stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, punished, and wounded for our sins, for our transgressions. So it, it like twists the whole picture around, isn't it? He, the servant Jesus is not suffering because he has done something wrong. He's suffering because we have done something wrong. And you notice that these words, uh, if you look at chapter 53, it's full of these very powerful images, right? Stricken. Stricken means to strike or to be beaten. Smitten means to be killed or destroyed, right? Afflicted means to be oppressed, right? You're afflicted or oppressed by something. You're pierced, right? So if I pierce you with a sword, I kill you. I crush you just as Thanos killed Loki. I'm punished, I'm wounded. All these very powerful words are to show that this is what the servant endured, not for his own sins, but for the sins of other people. So last week, um, somebody in our church sent me this article which I read. Um, and uh, the next slide. And uh, I'll read to you a little bit of what uh, this uh, uh, theologian wrote. He said, um, as I thought about the words in this passage, I realized there was something instructional featured here. As for me, if for me, the way to God was true, was in the allure of beauty. For the suffering servant, the way to God was in the forsaking and abandonment of beauty. He who was previously robed in beauty allowed himself to be robbed of beauty. Now when I read this, I thought, this person doesn't understand Isaiah, right? Because the servant didn't allow himself to be robbed of beauty. It wasn't as if, you know, he woke up one morning and said, okay, I'm not going to use gel today. Uh, I'm going I'm to wear my lousy jeans, right, instead of my nice Armani. Uh, I'm not going to wear my Rolex. I'm going to wear my Casio, right? No, I'm, I'm not going to put on any makeup or something. No, those are not the words that we read here, right? The words that we read here is that he was stricken, he was smitten, he was afflicted, pierced, crushed, punished, and wounded for what we deserve, right? We, we are the ones who deserve to be stricken, 
and smitten and, and crushed and afflicted and pierced and wounded and punished. And that's why it really answers everything that we've read in the first three servant songs, right? Because the question that we ask ourselves is, how can the servant suffer and save, right? How does he save and suffer together? It doesn't make sense, right? But actually it does now, right? Because he suffers in order to save, right? He suffers in order to be a substitute to save those who deserve suffering instead. So some people think that they don't need Jesus Christ. You know, maybe you've heard it said that, oh, I don't need Jesus. Jesus is only for people who need a crutch, right? You know, I don't need any help from Jesus. You know, I'm man enough to take my own suffering or to take my own judgment. But how foolish that really is. Because at the end of the uh, this small little section, God wants us to know through Isaiah in verse 6 that all of us need the servant, right? All of us need the servant substituting himself for us. Because it says there very clearly in verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay, so what word keeps being repeated here? All, right? All of us have gone astray. Each of us have turned to each to our own way. All of us have iniquity or wrongdoing. So all of us really deserve the punishment that Jesus received, the suffering that Jesus received, the servant received. So unless Jesus substitutes himself for us, we will receive what Jesus received, that sort of suffering. Now in the original context, uh, God's people, the Jews, when they were conquered by the Babylonians, they were exiled to Babylon. If you were to ask them, what is your greatest need? They would say, my greatest need would be to be saved from the Babylonians, to be brought back to my capital, Jerusalem, to be restored back to Judah. But God actually says, behold, right? pay attention, watch this. Your greatest need is not to be saved from the Babylonians. Your greatest need is to be saved from your judgment, from sin. And it's not just God's people in the 7th century BC or 6th century BC. It is the greatest need of all people in all time. We all need a substitute in Jesus. And that is the heart of the servant's mission. The heart of the servant's mission, the core of the servant's mission, is to suffer in order to save people by being a substitute for them. So the heart of Christianity is not prosperity or speaking in tongues or rules and regulations. The heart of Christianity is the mission of the servant Jesus, which is to be a substitute to suffer to save people. So last week I went for dinner. It's my son's birthday. And we went for dinner. And uh, overlooking the ch- our my table where I was eating, Chinese hot pot, right? was a, a church, and they had this um, poster, or oh, not poster, it had a banner advertising people to come for uh, like a get-to-know-Christianity thing, right? Now, if you, for those of you who have eyes to see, you'll, you'll know what this poster comes from, but if you don't, then you can ask me later. But the question was, what am I doing here? So what am I doing here? So I was uh, in the middle of writing my sermon, and I was thinking, 
is that really the right question? Right? You know, what am I doing here? Because actually, I, I don't really need to come to church uh, to find out what I'm doing here. I mean, many people find the answer of what I'm doing here in many different things, right? I could be playing golf every day, and I, and I feel I might be answering the question, what am I doing here, right? My, my role is to play golf every day, I mean, right? But actually, the right question is, what is Jesus doing here? Right? What is the servant doing here? Because if the servant's mission is to be stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, punished, and wounded in my place as a substitute, then I really need Jesus, right? I really need Jesus because if that's his mission, then all of us, all of us need to have our iniquity laid on him. So recently, there was this very prominent Christian uh, writer called Joshua Harris who has fallen away as a Christian and he's written in his uh, Instagram to say he's no longer a Christian. And I was reading an article saying how, you know, uh, some people already stumbled in their faith. They might f- they've fallen away in their faith because of Joshua Harris falling away. If you don't know Joshua Harris, then it's good for you then. Uh, right? But then I was sort of asking, asking myself the question, is the heart of Christianity, is the heart of your Christianity, Joshua Harris? Right? Because... If you fall away from Christ because of Joshua Harris, then who is going to be the substitute for your sins? Uh, just again, uh, in a few weeks ago, someone about my Bible study was sharing with me about how some of their relatives had uh, stopped going to church because of various reasons, and then some of their children had stopped being Christian because their parents had stopped going to church. And I was thinking to myself, well, you know, is the church the, the heart of Christianity? You know, if you're unhappy at church, then surely find another church, right? Because... If you stop being Christian and your family or children stop being Christian, then who is going to be the substitute for your children? Right? You can't blame the church, right? Jesus is still the one who is the substitute who suffered for your sins. So, I want to quote uh, Leon Morris, the guy who wrote the book in the beginning. And I think he writes it really bluntly. Uh, as he says himself, he says, To put it bluntly and plainly, If Christ is not my substitute, I still occupy the place of a condemned sinner. If my sins and my guilt are not transferred to him, if he did not take them upon himself, then surely they remain with me. If he did not deal with my sins, I must face their consequences. If my penalty was not borne by him, it hangs over me. There is no other possibility. See, this is the heart of Christianity, that if Jesus Christ is not my substitute, if he did not suffer to save me by taking on what I deserve, then I'm still in my sin. That is the core of Christianity. So I hope that no matter what happens in your life, no matter how many Joshua Harris's there are, whatever bad experiences you have with other Christians, that you will still remain Christian because at the end of the day, that's what counts, isn't it? Jesus Christ, the servant, suffering in my place to save me. So I hope that uh, if we understand what Jesus really did, then we can then all stand up now. I want, I want to invite you all to stand up. And I'd like you to read the last passage with me, the, the verse 4 to 6, which I think is the most important passage here in Isaiah. So why don't we all stand and recite it together? Because if we really understand it, then I feel they will keep us going in Christ so Jesus comes again. So let's read it together. Surely he took up our infirmities 
and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was cursed for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, surely what a wonder is that 600 years before the coming of your son Jesus, that you, in your foreknowledge, in your sovereignty over all things, uh, was able to prophesy to your people, to behold the servant that was to come. And we thank you that we live on this side of the cross, for we know that in Jesus, he is the one that has been stricken, smitten. He is the one that has been pierced, crushed, and afflicted. He's the one that has bore all our punishment and been wounded in our place. Dear Father, we acknowledge that we all, like sheep, have gone astray, that we have all broken your holy law in so many ways. But we are so thankful because Jesus, Jesus is the one in whom all our iniquity has been laid upon. And we thank you for sending Jesus, your servant. We thank you for his suffering. And most of all, we thank you for our salvation through him. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.